But we're talking about brand new, a brand new, it's a brand new series. We ran out of titles, we ran out of series names, and so it's just brand new. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. It's not old. We didn't, we haven't done this before. It's brand new. Uh, <laughs> But this particular title of this week's message is Letting Go, Letting Go. And this is one of the, hard, the hardest things for all of us to do is just to let go. No matter what it is, it's hard for us to let go of what we've known to be true. And so the church even has changed so much in your lifetime, no matter your age, the church has, has changed so much. And probably along the way of the change, there's probably been something that maybe has offended you or has touched your heart or that you hold that held as sacred or dear and maybe even you didn't realize it was a little bit religious because you were more connected to the thing than the one who it's supposed to lead people to and it's no longer leading people to Jesus and so it's time for it to go but it's like oh no I really love that thing rather than people now it's bringing new people we're changing things and I don't like the people and I just want the stuff back give me that steeple you know there's what was the thing, the house and the steeple, and open it up, and unfortunately, there's not many people. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's just, they've gone. And so everything's beginning to shift, and, and, you, and you, you see these buildings, and you know what denomination they are, even if you never saw the name, because this denomination looks like this, this religion looks like this, this denomination looks like this, and, it, and it's all just a form fit for a denomination more than it is to reach people for Jesus. Yeah. And so all these things it's shifted so much. There was the stained glass back in the day, and we love our stained glass. And the problem with stained glass is it's expensive, and it's also expensive to insure. And now you've got to put plexiglass on both sides of it so nobody breaks it because there's so many vandals out there. And, and really, what that technology, because that, stained glass was just technology of the day, those who love the technology of stained glass, they hate the new, the new technology which God is using to reach the culture, to bring people to Him, and that's these lights. Because all stained glass was, when sun hit it, it produced these different color lights into the building. And now those religious people who don't like the stained glass being gone or hating the lights, it's the same thing. It was just their generation of church lights. Let's get over it, people. The issue is... Is it pointing people to Jesus? Okay, is, are people getting saved? Yes. Are people actually coming back to church? Yes. Thank the Lord that people want to come back to church. Who cares what he uses to get them to him as long as they get, he gets them to their knees and begin to worship him and have an awe-inspiring exchange of life for old for new? That's what counts. So if we can just settle in right there, Maybe we can let go of some stuff. I know my church that I grew up in, uh, this, it looked like most of this denomination's churches. Uh, my mother and I were there because of our family dynamic and things that were going on in our family throughout my, my, my young childhood. We were there all the time. If church was open, am I lying? If church was open, we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, any night there was a revival week or Wednesday night, I mean, we were there. Most oftentimes, if my brother didn't act up in the back of the service and get beat on the way out, then I, we would have stayed later, and then we'd get to go have that hash brown from McDonald's because they're the only people open. That was my favorite thing. But the, but the pastor had, gave me an assignment, and it was the most scary assignment in all the earth because they didn't know anything about three-way switches back in that day. 
There was a long hallway, and it led to a room with a bathroom and another bathroom, and then a kitchen and the fellowship hall where weird things would happen from time to time. And unfortunately, the light switch was on the far end of the hall, and the only way to get the lights off is to hit it and run to the end of the hall. <laughs> because every scary movie has some kind of cave or dark space that you're in, and there's this one little light, and if you could just make it to that one little light, your life will be saved. And in the children's hall, it was way down there, and there was a one little light so that somebody down there could see. But me being on the dark end of the hall, I couldn't see it, but all I could do was run towards the light. <laughs> run towards the light. And hopefully nothing jumps out of that bathroom and gets me or that weird place, the fellowship hall where stuff would go down from time to time. Lord, help me. Let me just get near the light. That's the church I grew up in. Whew. It's all changed, though. And now, now there's a different dynamic of churches like ours, and, and we're growing, and it's thriving, and people are engaging, and people are welcoming, and the, the worship is engaging. Even when it's, when it's Delaney leading here with our acoustic guitar, she's just still just ushering in the presence of God, and people are, you guys are worshiping God, and she's, she's not making it about her, she's making it about Him, and you guys are saying, I see Him, and I'm experiencing Him. And so it's all fulfilling its purpose. But with all this change, with all this revival, with all this passion, with all this renewal, with all this lack of stained glass, there's still something. We still hold on to things that hold us back. We're still holding on to the old. Even with the music, the awesome, the awesome music and the lights now, we still hold on to things that hold us back. Uh, many of you said, in fact, that you would never go to church again, right? Many of you said that, and I'm glad you're here, and, or you, maybe, maybe you're listening online because we have online as well. We're on Facebook and iTunes and podcasts and all kinds of casts, Google, Google Play. Maybe you'll be listening to this, but you said, I'm never going to church again, and yet you found yourself in a place just like this. One guy told me before the service, he said, I tried to pay somebody, a, hundred, a friend, $100 to come, and he wouldn't come to church. That, that much, that, that's how resistible the church has become for, for people. But you're here, and, and you're seeing change, and you're seeing how things can be different, and you th you're seeing how things should be different. But with all that, the question is, why is the church so resistible? Because most of the things you resist about church are things the church should resist. That's a striking statement. Most of the things that you resisted about the church are the very things that the church also should resist. Now, don't check out yet. Follow with me. Track with me. We're going to be on this road for five weeks, but it, this is going to be challenging and maybe a little bit emotional for some because I'm going to play with your, your heart, your sacred cow. Around here, we shoot sacred cows. That's why things could, can be different anytime you come in because we realize it doesn't work and it's not, not leading people to Jesus. So we're going to we might, we might cause some emotional changes, but that's okay. We need that. Sometimes we need, it. we need an emotional outlet to let go of things so that we can embrace what Jesus really wants to do. So what is the church? That's the big question. The church is a community of people who follow the teachings of a man. We think he was God, but the world may say there's some man that came. The teaching of a man, who follow a teaching of a man sent from God to explain God and clear the path to God. We're a community of people who follow the teaching of a man we think is Jesus, we believe is, is the Messiah, who sent from God to explain God and to clear the path 
to God. So what is to resist with that? What's the problem with that? Because if we're, we're really here, the question is, are we really here to follow God? What, why is it the church so resistible? His message was to love God and love others. We give, we serve, we comfort those who are broken. We, we are accept, we welcome. What it, so what is there to resist? What's so resistible about that? The application that Jesus had for us was to love God, love others, and love your enemy. Oof. But the, the first church took off with this. The first century church, when Jesus came off the cross and he was resurrected, the first church that launched out, they, thrived, they grew, they, they were strengthened by this, they owned this. In fact, they, the only persecution that they had was because of one reason. See, there was a Roman king, there were emperors, there was Nero, there was Caesar, and they existed, and they wanted to have no competition. They were very domineering. They didn't want anyone else to have a, to call anyone else king. And the one thing, though they were the Christians, the first, first Christians, very loving, very welcoming, they loved their enemies, they still called this guy God. They called him Jesus, the Messiah, and they called him king. They didn't resist the Romans. They didn't resist anything that Nero was doing. They didn't resist anything that Caesar was doing. They didn't resist any of these things, but they would not call them king because they already had a king. The only thing resistible about the first church was the fact that they knew some guy, they called him God, but yet he walked the earth and they worshipped him as a king. This was the main problem. This was the main issue. Now, the people of the day would be like, well, man, those, those Christian women are so lucky. The men, the men walk with integrity. They're honest. They're, they're well-behaved. They're well-mannered. They really treat their women really well. And the men are so lucky because the women, they're so honoring. They're so humble. They're so, they're so wise. And they're so, they, they, they just, they're that Proverbs 31 thing that they talk about. That The women are just so lucky. The men are so lucky. In fact, me as a Roman, I wish my daughter would marry one of these Christians because the men I know would treat her so well. But there's this one thing that I just don't get. They worship this guy they call a god, and then they call him king. Wouldn't it be great if the only problem the world had with the church was because in spite of all of our loving and all of our welcoming and all of our loving our enemies and all of our accepting and all of our generosity and all of our, our receiving people, the heart, the broken, the wounded, and all of that, and what if the only thing that the world said was, but they follow Jesus? Unfortunately, I've never heard anybody say the only problem I have with the church is that they follow Jesus. So there's other things that have gotten in the way, have crept in, and never should have existed, never should have existed inside of the church, and the church has begun to do things that are completely abstract from what Jesus actually meant when he instituted this thing called the new covenant. And we all carry it. Every one of us are struggling from this. Anything outside of the following of following Jesus that makes the church resistible should be resisted by the church as well. Why isn't, there's the question, why doesn't everybody in America go to church? I mean, we're abundantly blessed. We are. 
I don't care what your socioeconomic status is. I can take you to Honduras in a month, and you will come back saying, I am mightily blessed. You are an American Christian by, by, for Jesus' sake. You are abundantly blessed. You have all the power of God that resides in you. You, you have access to peace that surpasses understanding at any time that you desire. In fact, you've got the owner's manual to life itself, and you have a relationship with the guide, the tour guide of his owner's manual who handed it to you, who is continually trying to give it to you. And when you can't find the answer for your situation in it, which it is in there, but your specific situation, when you can't find that, the author himself wants to speak down, sit down and speak with you to give you the answer to your specific problem in your time of need if you're willing to listen. So why does the whole world, not just America, not want to come to church? Why doesn't, why doesn't, uh, who doesn't want their life to be better? Who doesn't want their life to be better and to be better at life? Because even if you never make Jesus your Lord, but yet you follow the teachings of Jesus to the letter of everything that he gave, every word that he gave, even if your life will be better and you will actually be better at life. But then when you add the power of the blood of Jesus that washes over you, how much more abundantly should and could and will your life be? Isn't, isn't that striking that we have all that access and yet we still can't attract a world to everything that they could possibly have? everything that's offered to them, everything that's beneficial to their life and life more abundantly. Isn't it striking to us? So it makes me wonder, why doesn't everybody in America go to church? What happened? What happened? What is this resistible factor? What is the factor that shows everyone, and sometimes even you, some of you that said you would never go to church again, what is that resistible factor and I want to show you that you're going to discover that it's not really new things being added in, but it's actually old things being reintroduced that Jesus never intended for the church to carry in the new covenant. It's old things from the old temple model when there were priests and sacrificial lambs and the holiest of holies, that you were not good enough to enter in. I was not good enough to enter in. This, this old temple model is continually being brought back in since after the third century church to help make sense of how we do this thing called church. Because surely that's what Jesus really meant, right? The temple model is this itself. It's sacred places with sacred texts, with sacred men. It's always men, right? Sacred men and sincere followers. I wanted to keep the four S's. It's more like superstitious followers. Or, let me change the letters up, it's scared followers. Because so many people, if you don't, go to, if you don't do it, if you, if you don't change from your ways, you're going to go to hell. So it produced a scared follower. Or so many religions, let's think about Muslim religion. There's a temple, a place they come in to worship. There's an imam, a sacred man. But only he knows how to understand the sacred texts. And he teaches 
the sacred text and tells you how you better live according to the sacred text. And if you don't, Muhammad will not receive you. You will not get all those virgins. Hallelujah. Who wants that many wives? <laughs> Sounds like if I live God's way, he's going to send me to hell. <laughs> I love one wife and one alone, and I'm so proud to have her in my life. Or the ultra-religious church, where's that, there's that man who wears the robe, and he walks around, and as if he floats, you don't even know if he has feet under that robe, but he moves so suave, and he's got this, this long chain with a big cross, and you never know what he's going to do, and it, sometimes it rocks side to side. And sometimes he sings his message. He sings it out loud to all of the crowd because he wants you to know the things of Jesus. The temple model. He's a sacred man. And all come in to listen, zoned in, confused. What is he going to say next? So that we know what to do. The temple model. The sacred man, sacred place. This place, this nice building with gargoyles on the side. They look like demons, but they're there to keep demons away. I don't understand it. How do you run away a demon with a demon? But it's on the side of the church. Tells me more about the church before I even go into that church. (laughs) Sacred place. Sacred space. Sacred man. Sacred text. How about the Buddhist temple? There's this big, big fat guy just sitting around like this, and, and everybody goes into this temple that he's all around, and they worship him. And, and I guess maybe if you don't do the right things, I'm not sure if it's this religion or not, maybe you don't get reincarnated as a cat. Whoever believes in reincarnation? You just got to do, right, do life right. But then how about witch doctors? In Africa, they're these sacred men. They have sacred texts. And their, their sacred place, all they have to do, they don't need a fence. They just put a skull on the corner of their, their homes or their, their property. They put some bones around. And what do they do? They tell people how to live and what they should do, and they control through fear. We'll tell this region how it should live because we'll keep it afraid of the sacred text. We... We, I was in Africa one time in Uganda, and we were doing missions work, and we were in the city, and this was after the genocide that it came through, and there's these huge vultures that through the genocide, this time of the genocide, bodies were everywhere, and the vultures came in, and they were literally eating flesh in the city. So they never left. They weren't there originally, but they're there now. So you see these huge birds, huge birds. And so they're there everywhere, and I'm sitting in the city of, in the center of town, and this lady who's sitting on the steps over here starts throwing some bones at me. And the police officer standing there, grabs the butt of her gun and throws them back at her. <laughs> it looks like a little pork chop, like a socket on a pork chop or something. But that's what they do. That's, 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 their, that's their way of, of living life and sacred. It's all sacred to them. I, we go to Honduras sometimes, and, and there's a place called La Pintada that we used to go to and minister. And we did a lot of work there. And, and the lady, at one time, uh, one, of the, one of the people came up and said, hey, there's a witch doctor there. And by the way, we had gone to a house where the witch doctor had put some kind of curse on an individual and broke all of those, and their whole family was getting healed. And so after this effect, uh, they said, they want to meet you. I said, great, I want to meet them too. And they, ne- they never came up the hill, though. 
they wanted to control out of fear. That's all it is. If they could put fear in us, maybe we'll leave. But they really had no power. So the temple model, the temple model that existed in the beginning has slowly begun to trickle back in. And unfortunately, it is still alive and, and living today in the church. And anyone who can stand up and say, if you don't do it this way, you're going to go to hell, has way too much power. The temple model grants extraordinary power to sacred men in sacred places who determine the meaning of sacred texts. And you may be thinking, well, well Nathan, isn't that what this is? Aren't you explaining sacred texts? Isn't this a sacred place? And aren't, are you not a sacred man? And, and, and what are we doing right here? Do we not have sincere followers? Uh, you know, yes and no. Yeah, yes and no. Yes, Scripture says that we do not forsake the assembling of one, one another together. Yes, Scripture says in Romans 13 that, that you uh, submit to your leaders and because, they, uh, because you're not, when you resist them, you're not resisting the leaders, you're resisting God uh, Himself. Yes, Hebrews 13 says to obey and, and, and submit to leaders and let it be joy that they watch over you and not grieve them so that it will go well for you. Yes, it says all these things, but doesn't it say to honor the weakest vessel in the assembly? Doesn't it say that we are to honor one another? Doesn't it say that the teacher will be held in high esteem, that, no, sorry, high esteem, a high standard, not by men, but by God? Doesn't it say all of these things and just messes with us a little bit? So how do we do this and yet keep from being a sacred man up here? I'm going to tell you. Because the message discovery will be that though some things remained, it should not be that way. I am no more special than you are. It should, the thinking should not be that way. Do not forsake the assembly with all these things, but the arrival of Jesus signaled at the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. It was over, which is why he said, I'm going to crush this temple and raise it in three days. He was shifting people's thinking of a place where they bring in a sacrifice to being the holiest of holies. At the end of his life, Jesus sent the disciples to tell not only the Jews, but all men everywhere. Jesus began to tell, say, it's not the temple. It's not the temple that's sacred. It's not the temple. Back then in their culture, you don't go and talk to a Gentile about the word. You don't go and tell them about anything that has to do with God. You talk to Jews and Jews alone. But Jesus was saying, you go tell the whole world, all the Gentiles included, that you are the sacred ones. That you are sacred. That you are sacred. That this place right here that we are in is only sacred because you are in it. And when we bring our sacred selves into a building, it is sacred because of the Spirit of God that rests upon every one of us and inside of every one of us. And He meets us in this place and He calls it sacred because you are His temple. And He starts to mess with our minds a little bit. How do you do that? How do you do this thing called I am sacred, and I'm the temple, and, and I'm holy. How do you do this? Wait a minute, there's the holiest of holies, but he ripped the veil so that we could enter into this thing called the holiest of holies. Jesus, Jesus predicted a new movement. No more high priests, 
No more sacrificial lambs. No more little turtle doves to be sacrificed because I'm too poor to, to have anything else. No more. He leveled the playing field for all socioeconomic statuses and races, all genders, all everything. Jesus. And entering into Caesar, uh, Caesarea Philippi, just north, northeast of, of Nazareth, he says this to his disciples, who do you say I am? You know who Caesar is, but who do you say I am? And they start beating around the bush. Well, some Jesus say that you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. You know, some say that you're Elijah. But who do you say that I am? And, Jesus, and, and, and Peter speaks up and he goes, uh, you're the Messiah. You're the one that, that, that everything's been pointing. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you that, Pete, that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. And we get this word out of a lot of strife and battle and war and death. This word that's been converted to church because William Tinsdale in the first English Bible in the 1500s that ever was translated and was translated from the Hebrew and Greek texts directly, the first translation in this word, he had the gall to mess with the religious sect, and he says, wait a minute, this word, because it's Jesus saying, saying it means gathering, assembly, or congregation. And so in the first text of the English Bible, he put congregation. And boy, he set a fire inside of the religious people. He said, no, they said, no, we are going to be a church, a temple model. We are going to be a place where people come in and do the same thing, not only for the Father, but for Jesus now. And he was arrested, and he was strangled to death, and he was burned because of his willingness to speak exactly what Jesus meant about this word, ecclesia, that we are his assembly, that we are his gathering. And Jesus said that no matter where we go, he will be with us. And so the re religious scholars came back along and said, oh, what we're going to do, we're going to take a German word, which means house of the Lord, and we're going to put that in the meaning of that word in this place called ecclesia. And so that, that now, when you think of church, you think of that place that we're building out there behind Waterburger. You think, I'm going to church, or you're coming to church, but you're not. You're coming to a building where the church meets. And that's why we think that way, because the religious scholars said, no, wait a minute, we've got to call it, if we're not going to use the word temple, we've got to use church for building. And it's taking the perspective off of us being the church to us going to church. And that's why in the pews, everybody just sits and waits to be fed because they don't know that they are the church. They just go to church. It's really good. Jesus' whole purpose of saying that you are the church, you are the ecclesia, you are the assembly, you are the congregation. Lo, I will be with you in all, of, in all of the age. I will be with you. I am sending you out. 
We come in to worship. That's exactly what he wanted, to be edified, to be built up, to be strengthened, because when we come together in corporate worship, something just happens. When we come together and I give you a perspective according to Scripture and I deliver it to you, you don't have to believe it. I'm not a sacred man any more sacred than you are. I'm just giving you the text as the Lord I feel like he's given to me and I just deliver it and then you can do whatever you want to it. You may or may not go to hell. That's your choice. I can't tell you that. So you get to run, take the ball and run with it wherever you want to go. But what Jesus meant was we were going to be an assembly that would change the world. And so we come in, worship, and we go out and we meet in homes and we talk about things of the Lord and we invite the world who may not come to the assembly, the, the corporate gathering. We invite the world into our homes where we serve them, we love them, and we let them be about a, around a small body of believers so that they can see, wait a minute, I can trust these people. They're not weird. Just because they believe in this guy called Jesus and they call him God and they call him king, that doesn't make them weird. So I get to know them on a, on a basic level, on a relationship level. Jesus said, no, I will start a new congregation and I will be with them wherever they go. This is, he said, a brand new movement, a brand new day when Jesus instituted a new covenant. No more sacrificing priests that sing and have a big chain and a cross around their neck. No more holiest of holy places. The veil is torn and you get to come in. Now I'm establishing a brand new covenant, Jesus said. The old approach to God is over and it is over forever. And that messes with our heart a little bit because there's some sacred cows mooing around in there. I hear you. I hear you. And then in Luke twenty two twenty says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And the disciples were like, What is he talking about? There's no blood. And if there's blood in that cup, I ain't drinking it. Does the dude need a Band-Aid or a bandage? What's up? How severe is this? They're confused. Sitting at a dinner, dinner table, this is my blood. Here you go. It, I, I'm pouring it out for you. What? Jesus, I, you, you talked about this eating your flesh stuff, and all, all but the 12 of us left. We're still here, but now you're starting to talk about us drinking your blood. What are you doing? Like, what are you, what are you really talking about? But as they would later find out, as they later stood and watched, and they watched Jesus' body bleed to death on a Roman cross, it hit him. Oh, this is his blood being poured out for all of mankind. This is the final sacrifice, not only for Jews, but for all of humanity. It hit him. This is what he was talking into. This is what he was talking about when we thought he was crazy. This is what he really meant. And Jesus gave new meaning to the sacred text and statements just like this one and the one I'm about to say would just slide by that reader, that Christian, that, that, that one who just reads the text for its surface meaning and just weekly, I'm just going to read the top of the text and get by and check off my religious duty of reading the text but the ones who dive deep into the Word and the ones who say, I need to discover more of who I am according to God's Word because it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The one who dives into the Word and says, I need to know who I am in Christ, not just who He is. 
that's the individual that would have caught this and says, ah, that's what he meant. And then he says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He was saying everything that you learned in little grade school in learning and memorizing the Torah and understanding everything about the Torah, the law itself, which is what we know the Old Testament, know as the Old Testament, everything that you learned, guys, all that was was a bright red neon flashing light that was pointing to me, your Messiah. And with all that learning, you missed me. It's all pointing back to Jesus. And, the, and this world, and this would stir up a world of controversy. Jesus, sorry, and later Jesus used a Christian murdering religious Pharisee of Pharisees named Saul, turned to Paul, to, who understand, who understood the Torah and all the Old Testament. He used this man to begin to dive down, articulate, and begin to write out in the New Testament all the types and shadows of the Old Testament that actually point directly to Jesus. And they said, yes, I was murdering his people, but now I realize, oh my goodness, everything that I've studied all my life and everything I held against this people were actually pointing to the people that they worship, the person that they worship. Aha moment. Jesus instituted a new movement defining ethics. A new movement defining ethics. He is about to change the way we are supposed to do everything that we do in a moment's time. He's about to shift culture. He's about to shift religion. He's about to shift what people believe and how they live out what they believe. And in John 13, 34, he says, I'm going to give you a new, com- a new commandment. Like all these commandments. I'm going to give you a new commandment. And a new commandment I give you, love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And, and what he meant was it's more than just being a greeter at the door and saying, hey, so good to see you. So glad you're here. Welcome to the Drive Community Church. He meant more than just seeing somebody in need and having a, a dinner. And, no, I'm going to buy your, di- your dinner. I'll take care of the tip too. He meant way more than that. And he modeled it because at the dinner, when he was trying to get him to drink this blood or understand what blood was about to be poured out, he took off his robe and he took, grabbed his towel and he bent down and he washed their feet. This is what I mean by loving one another. This is what I want you to do because I'm going to model it by washing your stank nasty feet <laughs> as you eat that pork chop and brisket and you dip it in that barbecue sauce. And then said, guys, this is what I want you to do for the world. And Jesus said, when people start listening to you because you spent so much time with me and you start to understand the scriptures because my father is going to open it up to you and people are going to look to you like you have my information, you're going to feel like you're all built up and haughty. You're going to feel, and they're going to make you feel like you're a sacred man. And when they do, I want you to take your robe off, you grab your towel, and you start washing some feet. 
And right then, he shifted the whole dynamic of what leadership, Christian, believing, leader, godly leadership really is. Because when people try to raise you up as a sacred man, the evidence better be but that you start washing some feet. Whew. Messing with my sacred cow. My religion. No, I thought I worked, it, I worked my way up so much and I, I, I elevated myself to a level where people should just start serving whatever my needs are and whatever I want. And that's what made the church so resistible. Whew. Sweating up here and it's cold. <laughs> John 13, 35, he couldn't quit. Jesus, give it up. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How is the world going to know that we're truly his disciple unless we love one another? This is measured by how well you love those who are difficult to love. Whew, this has been the scripture exactly for my last month and a half. Because the Lord has blessed me with one individual who I used to sit at the same table with and talk and pray with, who for some reason God is using him to bless me to try to stop everything that we're doing, that we need to have electricity over at our building. And all I can do is say, don't say anything, Nathan, shut up. Love him. He's your brother. Love him, love him. I just want to crawl under the table when we're there at meeting. Love him. Love him. Love him. Love him. He's not my enemy. Not my enemy. Not my enemy. Not my enemy. Love him. Love him. Love him. They have a question for me. I don't know. I'm just trying to love this guy. Just give me electricity. Don't make me speak. That's true. It wasn't until earlier this week the Lord warmed, warmed my heart. Ah, man, but you know what? Exhaustion makes you respond in a way that's really not you, and so we need rest and resting in His presence. And thank God that He modeled Jesus would pull away to go and rest. And I want to thank my wife for giving me a couple of nights to pull away this week and go rest. So needed, so needed. Then Jesus did this in Matthew 5. He wouldn't relent. He says... Um, if you're at the altar and you realize you're about to give your offering and you realize you have a brother that has something against you, God can wait. What? No, I didn't. God can wait. Leave it there. Let it hang. Then go make things right with your brother. Then come back and give your offering. Jesus said, God can wait. Not in the temple model, he couldn't. The new covenant, God can wait. You better go make things right with your brother. And Jesus gave new meaning then. He couldn't quit. Gave new meaning to Passover too. It would, if, as, as if people weren't offended enough already, he wants to go and mess with their religious understanding of the Passover too. Jesus wanted to change people's hearts about what Moses did before leading the Hebrews out of Egypt. What? This, Jesus said, when it comes to the Passover, I want you to start thinking about me. This is my body. This is my blood. I'm being poured out. What is a Passover dinner? What? 
This would be like before Billy Graham died, getting on national TV. He's led millions of people to the Lord, and he gets on national TV, and he says, I want to, I want to, he got a State of the Union address type of speech. I want to talk to the whole world. I want to talk to all of the believers, and I'm so thankful to have led you to Jesus Christ and the church and those who have prayed for me. But starting at my death, I want you to, on Easter, I want you to start honoring me and giving homage to my name, Billy Graham, for all of the things that I've done for this world and my time on earth. Yeah, that's, that's how he looked at Jesus when he said that about him and forgetting about Moses. What? Billy Graham, you're crazy. Jesus, you're crazy. That's the type of offense that would have been, would have been taken. What, Jesus? Jesus says this in Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body. No, Jesus, that's not your body. That's a loaf of bread and I ain't eating it as your body. I'm going to eat it as bread. And we only, the only reason we eat bread on the Passover, Jesus, is because God told Moses to tell us before we go into the promised land that we need to gobble up all the bread before we go into the Passover, Passover the, into the promised land. So it ain't about you. You are not the bread. Jesus says, no. He took bread, gave thanks to, and broke it, and gave it to them saying, uh, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they're like, It was the flesh thing, now it's the blood thing, now it's the bread thing. We've been really flexible, Jesus. And I know you feel like you've done a lot. But Big Mo delivered us out of the, out of the <laughs> captures of Egypt. You know Big Mo, Moses? Big Mo delivered us. Uh, who have you delivered, Jesus? Hang on. Uh, Big Mo saved us. Who have you saved? Hang on. Then Jesus, when Jesus said this about himself in the Passover, they should have all gotten up and just exited the building or wherever they were. And the same if Billy Graham would have said the very same thing. But because it was Jesus, Jesus was saying, this is not Temple Model 2.0. This is not the same thing, but for me now instead of the Father. This is something entirely new. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. No more sacred places as they knew it. No more sacred men as they knew it. No more needing to go to have someone intercede for you with the Father. You could go directly to the Father. No more needing anyone because you could go directly to the throne. You could go boldly to the throne of grace and get everything that you need. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The entire law and the prophets reduced down to one single little four-letter word. One single little four-letter verb. Love your God, your neighbor, and your enemy. 
And after the resurrection, the church got off to an amazing start, flourished. They actually did this stuff. But then internally, the internally fine-tuned temple model that still resonated in the DNA of humanity, they begin to work those old priestly things, those old temple things back into the new system, and they thought maybe this is the way we're supposed to do it. Maybe, maybe we're, we're receiving persecution from the Romans because we're not doing it this way. And they started grabbing for the only thing that they felt safe and comfortable, and it's called religion. And Jesus says, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. You are my assembly. You are my congregation. You are my gathering. I want you to come in, worship. I want you to meet house to house, but I want to send you into all the world. And man began to elevate the Old Testament model, lifting now Jesus and Father. Now we have two. And the temple thinking remains even today. And it ought not be. So the church has become unnecessarily resistible. Unnecessary, unnecessarily resistible. But we are going to figure this thing out. And we are going to be the church, the change that the church needs. We are going to be the change that the world needs to see so that they will know there is a one true living God. This is a new covenant and a new model that works for everyone, everywhere, no matter what your history, no matter what your religious background, because it all meets at this place called Jesus and the model, the new covenant that he came to deliver. By God's grace, we're going to make an effort to strip away everything that is resistible to the world and everything that is resistible to the church to get it back out of the church so that we can fully embrace the very thing that Jesus meant when he set out this new model through his new covenant. And we don't know where it's going to go because we got too much religion in us right now. I can only give you the light at the end of this scary tunnel. Jesus. And who doesn't want Jesus? Who doesn't want everything that Jesus comes with? Who doesn't want to be able to deliver to the world and each other everything that Jesus comes with? But to do this, to figure this out, you're going to have to be with this sacred man listening to these sacred texts in this sacred place for the next five weeks as we go through this message series. I want to pray for your heart. Would you just put your hand over your heart? Oh, and just pray over yourself and really embrace this and hold it. Jesus, please help me get the religion out of my heart. Jesus, I didn't say this in the first service, but 
help me shoot the sacred cows in my heart. I'm just praying for filet mignon for everybody in the house tonight. (laughs) Jesus, help us to live the gathering life your way. And Father, we embrace you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and give grace to every individual in this place and every one of us that are battling with this and every one of us that are a little bit nervous and a little bit scared. And maybe, Jesus, there are people that have yet to come to know you. And if you're here and you've yet to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there will be a prayer team at the end of this worship song, and they would love to come and love for you to come and pray with them. Or maybe you just need prayer for anything, prayer for healing. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you need a prophetic word spoken over you. Come, come, come. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for grace. We receive you and receive Jesus in every way and everything that you are and everything that you come with because we want to be vessels for the kingdom of God and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, say it. Amen. Let's get up and let's worship God because he is so good.